All right, welcome to episode 36 of Uncorrect New York. I'm Tom Rosati. I'm Stephen Witt. And our guest today is Diane Pagin, who is one of the founders of the Basic Income March, which is happening this Saturday, October 26th, correct? Yes, yes. All right, uh, welcome. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the event? Uh, we're going to talk about uh, what the Basic Income March is, uh, and then we're going to talk about what Basic Income is, and then we're going to talk about your own background and how you sort of got involved in the movement. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, so, um, so we're we're having a march October twenty sixth uh, from West Harlem to the South Bronx to Mott Haven, and uh, it, we're going to start gathering at Convent Avenue Baptist Church. Uh, Convent Avenue Baptist Church is a pillar of the West Harlem community, basically, and they're, uh, they're being very supportive of What of streets are on? Uh, it is at uh, 420 West 145th Street, right at the corner of Convent Avenue. And uh, so we're going to uh, have some activities there at the church of some some speeches, a little bit of uh, rallying, and you know, getting people fired up to march, and then we're gonna take our our signs and all of our people, and we're gonna march down West 145th Street to the South Bronx. So we get to go over that little bridge there, Third Avenue Bridge. Cool. I think. Yeah. Who's speaking uh, at the uh, at the march? Um, so we have a number of people that are going to uh, speak. We have uh, James James Felton Keith, wh who is the the person who um, conceptualized uh, of having this march a few months ago um, when uh, we got together. Uh, he's running for Congress for uh, District uh, 13, Congressional District 13 for U.S. Congress, um, and uh, he's he uh, lives in in West Harlem. He's going to be speaking. Uh, we have uh, Hawk Newsom, who's the chairman of Black Lives Matter of Greater New York. Um, Scott Santons, who does a lot of, and who I've known for, for many years, and he, he has been um, studying, researching, and writing about, and um, essentially dedicating all, all of his time to, to helping people to understand how a UBI would work and, and what it would mean to them. So he's going to be talking. Uh, Andy Stern, who wrote Raising the Floor uh, not, not so long ago. Um, he's a senior fellow at the Economic Security Project. Carl Weiderquist, who is a professor, um, philosopher, guitar player, <laughs> a good friend, and economist. Um, at Georgetown University, um, and uh, he's going to be speaking as well. I've known him for a long time, and he's also one of the founders of the U.S. Basic Income Guarantee Network. And uh, one other person that's speaking is um, Bonnie uh, Shavana Ray Renee Newsom. She's uh, also running for Congress for District 15, which is the district where Mod Haven is is located. Cool. Uh, yeah. And this is part of, uh, what, like a, a half a dozen or a dozen different basic income marches that are going on all around the world. Is that correct? Yes. So when we when we started, we were the only march. And um, but of course, 
you know, we're we're um, we're networked into a whole bunch of people uh, over across the world um, through U.S. Big um, and also through a, a more wider network who've been looking at uh, basic income for many years, and um, all of those people, um, many of whom we we know and many who we don't, started contacting us and saying, you know. We could do a March too, and and people just just the natural enthusiasm of seeing someone else do it. I guess that got people interested, and at this point we have um, the official count is twenty four marches. Oh wow! Yes. Um, so just the yeah, I was gonna say so. This is you know I, I got in touch with you because I'm very interested in basic basic income, and obviously you are. Um, uh, one of the uh, experts in New York about basic income, and Steve, we talked a little bit about this. Let's let's just use your sort of definition, or you you explain what you think basic income is as a start, so we can sort of like get to a point where where that's you know where we can understand what it is. Does that sound good? Yeah, I'm not sure what universal basic income is. I I I guess what what I hear about it is. Mm-hmm that every adult over 18 or over a certain age is going to be getting a, a stipend to live, uh, like $1,000 a month or something. And um, doesn't matter whether you're rich, poor, middle class, um, and everybody gets it, and it's universal basic income. That's pretty much accurate. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of other things you could say about it, but it would be universal, so it would go to everyone uh, over the age of 18, every every American adult is is one of the proposals. Uh, some people are proposing a thousand dollars a month, which uh, you know me personally, I think it's a good number to start with, and it makes sense. Some people are proposing lower than that, which I I don't I don't necessarily agree with. But in print, but the principle of it, I think, is even more important than the quantity because the quantity you could always tweak it up or down you could peg it to inflation you could do different things but the most important principle about a universal basic income is the universality and that is why it would go to people that have no income that have mid-range incomes that have everything in between and even people who are very well off i see well i I know that I'm, um, both Tom and, and yourself are, are in favor of this. Um, I happen to be a skeptic. Um, Let's hear that skepticism, Steve. Let's bring it out. Well, first of all, I mean, obviously the question is, will it decentivize people to work? And that's, that's a question. I mean, and, and I had read an article about the, the TANF, you know, the— Right now, for social services, they, they require people to work, or they did. I don't know if they still do. Uh, do yes. All, all, all state TANF programs require a certain degree of And TANF stands work. for temporary? Temporary assistance for needy families, which most people will call welfare. You know, t- distinguishable from food stamps and other things, which are not the same program. I see. So, you know, I just... I, I get it. It's a right just to have money. Um, Wait, that's what you get, but but I I just I'm a little bit skeptical in yeah. how, how much is the whole thing going to cost? Is there an, is there a ballpark estimate what it's going to cost? 
Yeah, there's a ballpark estimate, um, but the ballpark estimates of what a UBI costs is is almost like, you know, if you use that same, if you use that that same line of questioning to get other things that are very very important, we wouldn't have those things. And to give you an example, you know, I I don't know what it costs to have a fire department in place in every every state in the United States, but I bet it's really expensive. Right, but they're but there to put out it. fires, right. Right, you need it because you can't have a reasonable functioning society without it. You That's know. an interesting analogy, actually, but I want to go back to that. But go ahead, Steve. What? No, I, I just, you know, I've been reading about California, and I know before we went on the air, you both were like trash in the South and how horrible it is, but yet... <laughs> But yet, yeah, I wasn't trashing the South. I was trashing the 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 uh, welfare programs that are run in the South. Well, the, you know the, the I was trashing the South. Uh, well, the no, the other side of that was, you know, states to do business, to start a business, entrepreneurial states. People are leaving New York. People are leaving California. They gave you know they're giving mental illness rights to people that have mental illness, and now people in in California they're supposedly using needles on the street and, and wait this, again this is like no, five no, different issues that you're rolling right once. well so, i guess the reason i'm saying it is that we would all love you know everything you know we'd love basic income and money and it i'm worried that it could lead to a breakdown of society of social mores yes social <laughs> that's really your root like i can understand like the cost analysis, right? Okay, it's what I think some like, I mean, and what we talk about what's going on right now, and this is it's really, um, um, it's a zeitgeist for basic income because of the candidacy of Andrew Yang, and he brought it up in the debate last week, um, and finally got some response and some debate back and forth between presidential candidates about mm -hmm. the viability of, of basic income, which is an enormous step. I mean, you know, just the the imagine imagine four years ago at the presidential debates even talking about this is un un unthinkable. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're at this point right now, we're really exploring it. But the breakdown of social, all right, so, and and people criticize it because it's, you know, it, how are you gonna, it's gonna cost $2.5 trillion, blah, blah, blah. I wanna go, in, I wanna get more into your sort of the pathology of the people in terms of what they would do, all, all this craziness that would happen if people got $1,000 a month, Steve. Well, what do you think it would, oh, sorry. No, go ahead, you, if you want to respond. No, no, I just, I want to preface it by saying that um, there's a lot of psychological, most, um, most psychological research shows that once people's basic needs are, mess, are met, they strive to be productive. And that's Maslow, that's Abraham Maslow, that's a whole bunch of other uh, psychologists who talk about, you know, not having your basic needs met the first thing that you do is you try to strive to keep it together to meet your basic human needs. And once you've done all of that and you're able to rest and kind of uh, nurture your, your spirit and such, then you strive for kind of the higher levels of, of your self-realization, I guess. And, you know, that's why everybody is in stress management and everybody has a therapist and even wealthy people have therapists now. So if they get basic income, they say, I don't need a therapist anymore. I got basic income. Actually, it's entirely, <laughs> it's entirely possible that, that uh, with the decline in stress levels that, that there might be a little less work for therapists. But who knows? 
Well, it's I, all right. It'll be made up with the basic income or so, whatever I, they're losing. Right. They'll just right. get their $1,000 exactly. a month. They don't have to even practice. <laughs> they can just be wandering naked in the streets, right. whatever Steve thinks is going to happen. But um, No, I don't think the sky is going to fall. I just am a, a little of a centrist in that. I mean, even when you said, oh, they're at least discussing it, it's because the presidential debates have like skewered to the left all the way. Well, actually, that's the funny, the funny thing you say is that the people who give it the most resistance are people are traditional progressives. There are there's a lot of acceptance among uh, conservative economists. Uh, for example, Charles Murray, right? Charles Murray, who wrote the very controversial. Um, what's it called about the 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 bell curve right this guy is not not a not a progressive in any uh sense of the term um he he's one, someone who has proposed a basic income um milton friedman proposed a basic yeah. income and by the way charles murray proposed it you know in in terms of the uh the history of basic income he came rather late to the game uh-huh yeah so he's, so wh- yeah. where but, is it but done right now is there any country right now that's doing this there are countries that have better uh, social safety net programs. There's, um, there's, um, there's countries that have better income distribution, but there is no, there's really no country that has a, tru- a truly universal basic income as of yet. But that said, you know, you can pretty much, you can pretty much assess how a UBI would benefit by looking at, at say, the child benefit in Canada, which is, a, a, you know, goes automatically. If there is a child in the household, um, they have similar things in France um, and and in all of those places that is just a pure cash transfer. There's no work requirement beyond, you know, it's just there to, to facilitate the role that you've taken on. And those things are extremely effective at reducing poverty. And you can see that in all the indicators where, you know, Europe and um and other places that have these direct transfers have much lower poverty r- poverty rates. So th- uh, this might be a good time to talk about mm-hmm. your background and how you got involved in the basic income movement. You're a social worker? Yes, so I'm a social worker. Um, so I've, I've been a social worker for about 14 years. I, I went to Fordham University to get my uh, degree. And uh, while I was there, I met um, a few people who were uh, I, I worked there and I went to school there and I met a few people while I was there and one of the people that I met was an author, uh, activist, welfare um, rights uh, analyst, um, lots of things, brilliant, named Teresa Funicello. I don't know if you've uh, if you know of her, but um, no. she wrote a she wrote a really amazing book called Tyranny of Kindness dismantling the welfare system to end poverty in America. And I, it, she wrote it in 1993, a little bit before the, you know, this was all solidified with the 1996 welfare reform law and all the, um, the changes that were made, um, you know, s- reportedly with the intention of making welfare better than mm-hmm. it was. And um, so I met her, and I, I actually, the way I met her was I read the book, and I was so overwhelmed by what she said that I reached out to her, and I, I gave her a call, found her and gave her a call, and I said, you know, so so you say that social workers are part of the problem because we're sustaining 
this system that puts mediators between people and 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 income and other things that she said and she documents and um, I said so should I just drop out of school or do you see see a way that I can be part of the solution and she said there's a way you can be part of the solution and you know long story short I ended up doing an internship with her I ended up working with her for many years we we wrote we co-wrote a comic book about unpaid the economic value of unpaid caregiving together Hmm. um, in 2007 and in, 19, in her 1993 book, she wrote, she has a chapter about guaranteed annual income. And that was, you know, that predates a lot of the people who are now very well known for talking about sure. basic income. Have you ever met Andrew Yang? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Andrew's fantastic. I think he would make a great president. Um, he, he was, uh, we actually met in um, around January 2018 a little bit before he announced and he he also uh came to our our basic income nyc movie night in february 2018 so uh so yeah i have and um he's a good guy funny guy oh yeah and he's a new yorker which you know a lot of people don't realize that i actually saw a newspaper refer to him as californian andrew yang (laughs) andrew yang is not from california that's making a lot of assumptions yeah um, he, they also call him a tech entrepreneur, which, which is, is not also true. a misnomer. Yeah. And and to correct the record, even though I'm diverging a little bit, I would like to say that um, you know to call Andrew Yang a, a a tech guy is a real misnomer because um, the way he the way he his path to to believing that a universal basic income is the way to go uh, policy wise was that he was running a not for profit. Not a tech, I mean, he, sure, right. he has people in the tech world, but he was running a not-for-profit, and he, uh, which required him to get his feet on the ground in many, many poor areas of the United States while he was doing Venture for America. And it was there that he saw grinding poverty and abandoned factories and all of this stuff. And he said, you know, no matter how effective we we can be doing this work of trying to you know do this not-for-profit creation of of good jobs you know for every three good jobs or or two businesses we open you know somebody behind us is eliminating something and that's how he came to it so he has more of a perspective of like a kind of a citizen um or community member who is seeing this stuff with his own eyes. And it gets me so annoyed when people refer to him as a tech guy, as if he's up in like Silicon Valley, <laughs> at some crazy tower, right. tinkering with robots. You know, it's ridiculous. But, but I think I think they're also trying to tie him to sort of more tech libertarians like Peter Thiel and other mm-hmm. sort of like tech right-wingy, um, you know, thought leaders that are trying to do away with the social safety net by creating some sort of like mm-hmm. gimmicky alternative. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not really the case. I mean, we can talk about this later, but yeah. I'd like um, uh, I'd like to go b- back. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you sent us an article um, that you wrote um, critiquing the temporary assistance for needy families. Um, is that something you experienced as a social worker in terms of this, this horrible process yes. in which uh, – poor people who are trying to receive some sort of aid would have to go through um, thousands of, of hoops and, and whatnot. So yes. wait, with universal basic income, they would get that instead of welfare benefits? 
So it depends on the proposal. Uh, the, the, the way I envision it um, is that they could, uh, we can keep that, we, we can keep the temporary assistance for needy families in place. Um, and uh, people should have the freedom to choose if they're already involved in that program. They can look, just like we would afford any person that wasn't on welfare, they can look and they, they can, you know, vote with their pocketbook and, and their own brains. If they look and they say, well, this UBI looks like it's going to work better for me, then they can say bye-bye, you know, temporary assistance, you know, see ya, and your compulsory work requirements and your stigmatizing crap. Yeah. <laughs> and they can, can you go, go into UBI. that? Because there's a lot of, uh, I, don't think, I don't think people really understand sure. Um, what that process is like for someone. Okay. So typically, um, you know, there's a, there's, it's so much to go into, but what I would say is there's a couple of markers, right, that, that we have to keep in mind. So coming at it from the perspective of like the argument, well, you know, we shouldn't get rid of welfare because that's not nice for poor people or it's unfair to poor people. Well, um, you know, to, to somebody that works very closely with people who are on welfare, um, what I can say is that um, the process to get welfare is very paper-laden. Now they're trying to move it more toward computers, but it's still confusing and, and process-laden. Um, it's rife with... Um, it's rife with, like, periodic check-ins that you cannot receive and then get cut off. Um, you know, as an individual, you have to uh, basically present yourself at welfare centers. Now they call them job centers, um, various times a year, at, or whenever you're having a difficulty, and you have to sit around in a very stress-laden environment. Um, and you know, you're often spoken to very poorly. And while this is my personal um, experience, it also happens to be the experience of a group that did a very recent um, and an extensive study called um, the Bureaucracy of Benefits. Mm -hmm. It's the safety net activists, um, many of whom are now UBI activists, mm -hmm. I must say. But they did an independent study of HRA and you know, basically percentages of how many times people are spoken to rudely, um, wait times over a number of hours, um, people that never, you know, how many times they call up to uh, schedule or reschedule an appointment mm -hmm. and uh, voicemails are full, all of which I've experienced as an advocate for my own clients. And, there, and these might seem like inconsequential, you know, like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, every government bureaucracy is wrong, but like this... It puts an inordinate stress on the person because they're they're calling the the worker to make sure that they get benefits, and if they don't get benefits, then they don't get that check. Right. I've I, I manage uh, low income to working class um, apartments in Allentown, Pennsylvania. That's my sort of day job, and I've seen firsthand how many people lose their benefits arbitrarily. They get cut off or th like random stuff where like. Yeah. Um, they're, uh, they have an on-track program for electricity, so they get, only have to pay like $20, $30 a month, but then they get kicked off of that, mm -hmm. and then they have to spend three months trying to convince the electric company to get them back on this program that they should never have been kicked off in the first place. It right. happens with kids with um, you know, dependents. It happens with the, the services. I mean, mm -hmm. I've, seen, I've only been doing it for three years. I've seen it 
time and time again, and it causes enormous stress. It ruins their lives. It does. I mean, they can get when when you when um, when yeah, four hundred dollar expense will derail you. I mean, if you don't get a check for eight hundred dollars, you could lose your apartment. You could lose your your car. Um, you'd have to move, and you have to like get your kids into it. It's, it just completely derails the pro the, the process, and yeah. um, you know, it's crazy. It is crazy, and and uh, just to kind of round out, like to the the larger issue, um, Pennsylvania happens to have one of the worst temporary assistance to needy <laughs> families uh, in terms of financial management. And uh, I wish that I could get some uh, some legislators, state level legislators, interested in fixing it. Um, I believe in 2017 it was that I presented about a few different states. They had left. Um, $740 million unspent on, on of their welfare grant. Yeah, can you? So, you mentioned the article that a lot of these uh, programs, they, they will deny people benefits and then use that money for other parts of the state budget. Yeah, then that's been documented. In particular, um, it hasn't been documented in every state, but that's only because no one, in many states, it hasn't come to. A, there hasn't been enough like public outcry or interest to oh. document it, but I but but it's pretty rampant. Um, in a wonderful journalist in um, Maine named uh, Matthew Stone of the Bangor Daily News, he basically sank uh, their um, Health and Human Services um, commissioner by relentlessly, you know, turning over rocks to see you know where she was putting money. And it was like ultimately very politically embarrassing for her. Um, she was diverting money intended for poor children and families. She was diverting it to um, to uh, elder care services that are supposed to be funded um, with her state budget. And so that's called supplantation. Right. And so uh, she was caught, you know, basically di taking eight million dollars out of the pockets of um, you know poor families with children so that she could save eight million dollars in her state budget I mean it's pretty reprehensible frankly yeah well I mean the argument here and Steve you so uh, Steve has covered a story called a, um, a TPT story um, which basically uh, uncovered Steve uncovered um, a bureaucratic mishandling of the taking of seizing of properties yep. by government agencies and it seems like the, the, one of the main arguments, Steve, right, for this for for moving to this sort of system is that there is an inherent messed up part of the bureaucracy that will always put people in harm's way, whether yeah. it's corruption um, and whether that person was maybe you know may, maybe just trying to juggle an impossible task of of managing a healthcare budget that that she couldn't do. It's just it's um it's inherently flawed. So universal income would replace this. Is that what we're saying here? So we're saying that legislatively, no one, no one is, uh, no one is saying. At least not people that I'm, I'm familiar with. No one is saying that we would do that. That we would replace this system, temporary assistance for needy families, or any other uh, uh, low-income benefit with a universal basic income what what many people are saying though so i know you hear that around but it really isn't accurate um really what it is is that um we want to make the ubi available and people can opt into it 
and they can then choose not to use this program that we're discussing. But it would seem to me that, like we were just talking about the bureaucracy and the shifting of money, that, and, and you know, Tom was saying, you know, he's seen in Allentown where people miss a check. Mm-hmm. It would seem to me that if you're going to do it, they should get both. What about people on Social Security? All of a sudden, if they're over 65, they have to choose either Social Security or the UBI? Well, you know, I don't really, um, I think that, I I mean, they're living at the poverty wage already, a lot of seniors. Well, okay. Uh, I mean, actually, actually, it's not, it's just they get both, right? I mean, senior, well, well, it depends on the proposal, but seniors are actually, while there are seniors living in poverty, seniors, um, you know, in, uh, they, they live less often in poverty than children in this country. Um, I'm not saying, of course, I'm not saying that, you know, anyone should live in poverty. I'm not saying that. But but there have been, uh, you know, because of Social Security, uh, senior poverty has has been, you know, lessened greatly. I don't really I don't really have uh, Social Security as my focus. So I don't know that I would even be the right person to talk to about it. But I mean, there's the point is that um we can entertain lots of different proposals. Like it's not like we have to have a particular proposal, um, you know, nailed down before we get a UBI. We can, you know, this is how we make policy. We make it. We have discussions. We make sure nobody's left out. We make sure everything is adequate. Right. I think and the confu- we do it. I think the confusion right now is because because Andrew Yang's particular proposals have been brought this to light that everyone looks at his particular way of mm. of implementing mm-hmm. ubi as as the 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 model but in fact mm-hmm. there are multiple models and there's multiple ways yeah, in which yeah. it right. could be tweaked but right. i believe just going back to that that andrew yang's model does have uh uh ubi supplementing social security and not taking it away oh, i see yeah right. and, and, and disability and and ten, you know all the social uh I, I'm not well, sure. I mean, there's some programs that that like SNAP food benefits are are you can keep those, you can keep housing, right. you can keep like a lot right. of different non-cash tangible ones. But mm-hmm. I think that what their main the main idea is to replace the cash benefits that are available to people now that usually have strings attached are replaced by UBI, which have no strings attached. Right. However, again, it's not that we would. It's not that overnight we would get rid of that program. What we would do is. People thinking thinking people would look and see which one is better for them, and right. they would choose. And right. I mean, there, it's it's no, it, you know, I think that we can predict that if you are, you know, getting two hundred and seventy dollars a month for a family of three, and you're expected to do compulsory work for it, and you know, visit people and be spoken to in in you know, in disrespectful ways. Or you can get a thousand dollars a month and never talk to anybody, and you know, chart your own course and choose what's best for your family. You're gonna say goodbye to welfare, and you're gonna take a UBI, and and that's a good thing. And you know, let you know what'll have to happen is temporary assistance for needy families, which for you know, 25 years has, you know, been increasingly punishing to people, is either going to have to reform itself and re- get redesigned to, to bring some benefit to the family or it's going to collapse and we will defund it and we will put all that money into the UBI. All right, so maybe it's a, an idea that time has come. 
Well, but the, I mean, all right. So there's a couple of critiques here that mm-hmm. I'm. I, I mean, it's interesting to debate because I get into arguments all the time with people. Like, for example, people who, um, you know, some more support a more traditionally progressive way of sort of helping the working working families and um, poor people. Um, do you have anything to say about that? Like, so for example, um, you know, in the debate, the debate last last week, right? Um, mm-hmm the idea that a federal jobs guarantee would, would be a better way to do strengthening rights for workers, strengthening rights um, for unions, that sort of thing. Uh, how do you feel about those as compar- in comparison to UBI, or is it even a comparison? Mm, well, I usually say that we already have job programs, and statistically the data show that they don't work. I mean, Andrew Yang has touched on that um, a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's talking about a range of different uh, uh, programs. My um, take on that is that you already have a federal jobs guarantee through welfare because it, you have to engage in compulsory work. <laughs> and, That's true. Right? And, um, and it just it simply doesn't work. And even I have uh, very conservative uh, um, colleagues. Uh, I have a, a colleague in, in D.C. who works on these things. Um, and his take on it, if, you know, he, he really goes into the numbers of temporary assistance and um, the compulsory work stuff. And his take is that um, it's kind of different, but we arrive at the same clu- conclusion, which is he wants, he, he is showing that most states are not putting people to work. Mm-hmm. But what they are doing is they're sort of, they're kind of fudging the numbers to to make it look like they're that they are, mm-hmm. um, which he has a problem with. I mean, I have a problem with compulsory work um, because no one should have to do compulsory work, especially right. when they're already doing unpaid caregiving, which mm-hmm. helps fuel the economy. But um, you know, to give an, to give you an example of like a job guarantee that we have now is. You know, a woman on public assistance has a guarantee that every single day her caseworker will require her, even if she has young children, um, varying ages depending on the state, she'll have to show up somewhere mm-hmm. at, you know, between 9 o'clock and 5 o'clock. And even if they have nothing productive for her to do, mm-hmm. she will have to mirror the work life of other people. So and th- she's got to pay for child care. She's got to figure out what to do with her kids. And oh, yeah, she doesn't. I, I have to correct you on that. So she doesn't have to pay for child care. Oh, okay. Tip. Welfare will pay for the child care okay. for her to go to this um, make work or no work situation. Is this in New York? Situation. This is in New York. It's in other places, too. So not only um, is the taxpayer... You know, or paying for they're paying for a the charade cash supplement. They're paying for a charade. We are paying for a charade. Right. Um, we're essentially not only are we paying for a charade of her. We're we're taking her away from her family, taking divesting her of the time that she could use to help her children, making her go to a place and 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 you know shred paper or do nothing yeah. or look through a phone book or what have you. I- I think that's, uh, but I think it's really important. That's something no, nobody talks about is how people feel in this process that mm-hmm. you've brought up like multiple times, which yeah. is like, it's a degrading experience. Very. I mean, um, and imagine how frustrating it is 
um, you know, I it makes me crazy, I have to say, to hear, you know, imagine how frustrating it is for a woman on public assistance who is, you know, she has she has a kid or two, um, and she is being sent to a place to waste eight hours of her day when she could be preparing food for the week for her children. She could be reading to them after school. She could be doing things with them. She could be, you know, doing some training to make herself more marketable. Right. So the thing is, and and this program that we have now that people are saying that we should make sure we preserve is doing this to them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, most most of the time, like what what is so upsetting is that, you know, we kind of say there's kind of this um, this other narrative that says, like, you know, like poor kids don't speak enough and they don't hear enough words and they don't have enough like good family time or whatever well why don't they have that? yeah seriously is it because of the parents or is uh, is it because of the programs that we're forcing their parents to be part of that's actually keeping them from parenting right or they're just working three jobs even if they're not i mean it doesn't yeah. have to be you don't have to be on welfare i mean you're working three jobs sure. i mean you go into an, <laughs> my experience you go into an apartment and the kid's sitting there watching tv he's two years old yeah all day yeah. no one's paying attention to the kid yeah, and the, and and Eric, we had Eric Adams on the on the show what uh, a couple months ago. He's talking about how you know the most important time for a kid to develop is between zero and two years right. old. Right, and, and you're taking that opportunity away from people. Right, and then what you're doing is you're saying, you know what? Not only are we going to uh, like send you to this place all day where you you kind of work, but you don't move up and you don't enhance your family's quality of life or income, but now we're gonna actually like give you a voucher to pay for the child care that will enable you to continue to do this and mm-hmm. so then it becomes you're not only paying for the the cash welfare and the terrible experience that this person is going through but you're also paying to um to put the child in a place so that the woman can continue to do it so that so so all of the costs like imagine you know, I don't know. I haven't done the math, but if even if it's like two hundred dollars a week for childcare times two kids, and the program's paying for that, that gets added into the welfare budget. Mm-hmm. Right. Why are we paying for to make people unhappy and to keep kids away from their their parents when we could take all of that money and put it into a real cash transfer? Steve, you got to have something here. What's your? Uh, I'm. You know, I'm just listening and I'm taking it in. I don't. It, you know, I anecdotally, I have uh, been on welfare mm-hmm. with my kids, and I raised mm-hmm. my kids, and right. I came here, and um, and it, it could be degrading. I understand that. Uh, you know, I'm having a problem with my medical right now. I got cut off, and you, you went to the Medicaid, and the computer wasn't working, which is there's like people out the door, and the computers were down. You know, so mm-hmm. you know, I I do understand that. I'm I'm still not sold on universal income though. I I just don't you know, I I'm not sure you you know, it's it's just hard when we talk about social services and and safety net services. We absolutely need safety net services. Mm-hmm. I don't think it always comes off. You know, I I began to think about Trump and the border. 
and everybody's mm-hmm. they're living in concentration camps and it's horrible but you know and and it is it is horrible the way people are traded trained and treated but logistically they had hundreds of thousands of people i i don't think i don't think the government did it purposely i think that logistically they had an overload of people crossing the border and they have to process them by law and it takes it takes some bureaucratic know-how and i think it's the same thing with welfare and there are a lot of insensitive people and there's problems but it, you know there's a lot of people that need help but it, they need money they don't need they don't need what they're getting right now they just need cash and that's what welfare was before 1996 it's funny like i think i i would feel like for you the argument would be the cost but it's it's not it's like the bureaucracy it's like you would want to you want to you would want to sustain this bureaucracy well i think the the cost is is a problem but again if it's either or if you're just transferring one for the other and going you know what since it's a big bureaucracy don't take the money we'll just give you $1000 and and you also have to get medicaid cuz when you're on welfare there's also food stamps and medicaid so right. and uh and there's also, if you have young kids, you have the not the WEP or what what is it, where you get WIC. milk, WIC, Women, right? infants. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you have a lot of safety net programs that aren't included in just the money. Mm-hmm. And right, if, but, okay. And, and if you just got the money, you'd still have to get food stamps. You'd right. still have to get Section 8. You'd still have to get Medicaid or medical. So why is that a problem to have a UBI and then all of those other programs that are more effective but you're just switching one for the other you are because one is superior to the other but they're not switching out snap and WIC. no those are different programs those are not welfare uh we're talking about and they would not only be the welfare people you know like the low-income people that are getting it but also the middle income yes and obviously the other thing that i'm very concerned about because i'm older now is Mm -hmm. social security and what about people on disability you know, like people that are, uh, would they get that in addition to the money they have? I think and I'm really concerned about Social Security because what you said, and I, I would push back on that, that mm-hmm. seniors, studies have shown they're very impoverished, that they have not gotten cost of living raises. They have not got inflation increases. My mother's 90 years old, and if, if there's going to be, you know, I hear a lot of progressive ideas like po- college debt, get that paid for, mm-hmm. UBI. Mm-hmm. My bottom line is if seniors don't get taken care of along with this, then I'm against it. Right. Steve's yeah. a woke senior. He he yeah. just turned 65, and he's oh, now a, sen- yeah, he's a senior, senior activist. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. Oh, yeah. no, that's that's very cool. And what I'm – I mean, basically my answer to you about it is – We'll get the UBI we all come to the table for. You know, we should come to the table and should include it. It should include everyone. Universality, taken to its you know true definition, is that everyone gets it. And I think that um, everyone should have an adequate income. And if there is data that show that there are many seniors that don't, which I do know that there is data that show that, then we have to um, make we we have to design it so that it improves that problem. We don't need to choose one suffering group over another. Universality makes it possible for us to not do that. 
And that's what we have to do. Yeah, but you just already said that people on welfare, they can make a choice on it. In other words, they're going to have to give up their cash supplement and they're going to say, all right, look, you don't have to come in. You get your thousand dollars or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. and you're not going to get your your TANF money, your temporary assistant cash money. Right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And that scares me as somebody who is getting ready to take Social Security. Right. And Mm -hmm. it, it, it used to be. Back in the day when my grandfather was alive at 65, mm-hmm. you got a certain amount. But now they, they defer it and they go, well, if you don't take it at 65, mm-hmm. we'll give you a little more at 67. Mm-hmm. We'll give you a little right. more at well, 70. Steve, right. Steve, when your grandfather my, turned, oh, sorry. My understanding of the proposals I've seen is that seniors are included. I'm sure that there are proposals where seniors are not included. Um, and again, we get the universal basic income that we're that, that we come to the table and we ask for. You know, senior groups can organize to make sure that, that seniors are involved. It has to be universal. It has to help everyone. And I do understand, you know, that um, there was a time when so- Social Security was more robust than it is now. You're talking about, like, the 90s where, you know, there were more, I believe there were more regular cost-of-living increases to, to Social Security um, and I do know that at this time, um, there I believe that there have been years where there have not been colas. And so I understand that, you know, that because of that, seniors are becoming poorer. We have to do something about it, and we can. It's We have the money for this. You're also bringing up a, uh, a crisis that's been uh, exacerbated by the longevity, right? So, like, you know, when senior, Social Security is invented, all right, you turn 65, you get Social Security for five years, and then you die. You know, like when the average life expectancy is 70 years old. The a- we don't know what the average life expectancy is for people, you know, growing up right now for millennials. Like, it could be 100 years old. I mean, it probably won't be, but, like, it'll definitely be more than it was for your grand- for your father. And so that's one of the issues in Social Security that we – I mean, I think what you're saying is, all right, well, I get nervous when somebody starts tweaking the levers, right? Yeah, if all of a sudden, you know, I don't want it to be either or. Right. If it's either or, then like, oh, everybody deserves, and now that kind of, it doesn't help me at all. It's well, a zero-sum game. But imagine if there was like, you had to, if that lever had was to tweaked, be tweaked every- To addition too. Yeah, but imagine if that lever wasn't just, you know, like people who were fighting on your behalf and lobbying and like a huge hard thing to do. But imagine if that lever was one person in an office- who had, it was like a bored desk job who had who had your paycheck in, in 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 front of them every month and that lever was had to be justified by you and all of your actions and anything that you did if you smoked weed once uh, then they take it away from you I mean th- like imagine that right you're talking about something that w- would require massive legislative action to change and imagine people le- right now living in constant economic insecurity because one person can decide whether they get that check or not or a mistake or just a you know like so and we're just talking about the the, we're just talking about one aspect of this right because the other aspect is the changing nature of work and the stuff that andrew yang talks about in terms of you know the the sorry um the 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 the, you know the the fourth industrial revolution which you know is going to bring economic instability for much larger group of people i mean that's probably not something that like you've been involved in this way before that right like, well, I got I got involved around 2004 after I met uh, after I met Teresa Funicello and I read her book and um, she was a she would go to the U.S. big um, the basic income congresses and I started going to those she took me to one and then I was kind of hooked you know because it just it just like kept 
reconfirming what I knew, which was that it's just, it's so unproductive to be mean and nasty to people um, because they're, you know, I mean, if anything, you're supposed to do the opposite. If you know somebody's having a bad day or a bad week, you're supposed to be nicer. You're not supposed <laughs> to kick them. And mm. and so, you know, basic income really gives, I think that what, what the appeal of basic income that we can't, I, I really hope that you don't get too, um, you know, what I'd like to invite you to do is to think about, you know, that we can be a better society if we treat people better. And the way that we are able to enhance our, our treatment of others and how people treat us is when we have the, the ability to walk away. Um, you know, when someone's mistreating you, you need to have the ability to walk away. Um, and if you don't have that, often the, you know, the mistreatment will escalate or it, they'll find new ways to mistreat you. And that is true of systems as well. If people have, the reason that TANF, the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families or Welfare, has gotten as bad as it is is because people don't have the, the liberty to walk away. Their children's survival is wrapped up in this program. Um, everything they have is wrapped up in this program. Um, you know, it's not, it's not really much different from the prison system, frankly, where, you know, your, your survival is wrapped up in, in the prison system. You know, and if you don't act a certain way and do certain things, you know, you 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 simply won't survive. And 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 low level jobs and in general. Low, right? And and in general, I mean, just even having just like, you know, the so-called uh, bullshit job, as as David Graeber calls it, <laughs> is, you know, there he, he has this marvelous part in in the book where he talks about how um, most people who have bullshit jobs know that they're bullshit. And part of right. how you survive it is you you kind of you buy into the the plan of of pretending that your job is valuable. Uh, just so so David Graeber is an anthropologist who wrote an article uh, what five years ago d describing the bullshit, the bullshit job. job. But yeah. he also he's an interesting. He also wrote about the idea of debt. Right, a book a book called Debt, where he yeah, talks I about read that book. It's well. It's great. It, it talks about sort of where the like the moral impetus of paying someone back comes from, and then you know how we analyze that and that, mm -hmm. what that actually means to society. Specifically, reference to the Great Recession in terms of yeah. you know who gets paid back and you know like who do we bail out, who do we not bail out, yeah. like who owes debts, who doesn't owe debts. But yeah, anyways, yeah. his next who's sorry, I'm just no no, no it's no, fine. Yeah. Digress it's fine. a bit. No, well, it's just explaining what you're talking about in terms of bullshit yeah. jobs. Um, but if you're worried about, you know, if you're worried worried about social decline, um, you know, I would say, uh, you know, in the current system, you see the social decline all around you, do you not? I mean, you know, you can't walk from 46th Street to 50th Street without um, seeing, you know, 10 or 12 homeless people. Um, you know, you see people on the train that are, are, are in need, you see people. And so the social decline is already here. So to, to worry disproportionately that making things better for, for a group of people will somehow lead to social decline. I'm just, I don't see it, but it's because I, I, it's because of my job, you know, uh, I've Where seen do you so work? much. Like um, so right now, so I've been a social worker for, for over a decade. I've worked pretty much everywhere. 
<laughs> right now I work for New York City. I work for the Department of Education and um, as a social worker, and I, I work in the division that uh, does the um, – that we develop educational plans for for students that have uh, special needs. Huh. Yes. So you're playing hooky right now? No, I got I, I got <laughs> off of work like oh, uh, okay. a little while ago. Oh, I'm just curious. Yeah. Huh? This is what I do for fun. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man. Yeah, hmm. but uh, but you know, to to your point, um, and you know, one way to look at this that I would I would say to let's try to you know, continue to talk to see how we can, um, you know, make sure that your concerns are incorporated into into the basic income uh, dialogue, right, is that if you, do, if you don't, if we don't figure out a way, you know, to do a universal basic income instead of what we have now, um, it looks pretty bleak. Did you know that in the New York City um, school system that we have we have a, 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 a lot. We have tens of thousands of children who are homeless attending New York City public schools. And, you know, there's data that show that pumping more money into the schools will not solve uh, those children's problems because once a child is homeless, um, absenteeism spikes, lateness mm-hmm. spikes, stress spikes, um, you know, family strife. Uh, malnutrition, you know, all of these things. And and these families are scrambling, um, you know, to try to do the best for their kids. But there's only so much that you can do in the frenetic and, and, you know, uh, shelter system. You can't, you can't make it, you can't make it work. And so the way to fix that problem is housing, of course, but it's not just housing. It's also the income that will permit you to pay for the housing. You can't just you can't just fix everything with non-cash tangibles and services. It just won't work. I I admire you for thinking of and it advocating for this solution. And when I hear it, I can you know, I can think about it and take it in and it might very well be the solution like i said it might be an idea that's time it's come but i you know i at the same token you like you were talking about the homeless kids they Mm -hmm. go to schools and we've Mm -hmm. i've covered that as a journalist i'm wondering if there should be more of a holistic something that covers it all is is it or you just think the start of it makes everybody gets a basic income you (laughs) Like, what do you mean? Like, what would, you, what else? You've do they like need? ripped apart the Department of Education for their holistic schools. Like, this is funny. You're like arguing your own devil's advocate here. Mm. Like, remember when you what, what was the school program that where they had all the social workers? Well, it's they actually canceled, canceled it. it. What, yeah, because it was seven hundred million. It was uh, what was it? Mayor De Blasio's plan. What was it called? Uh, not recap. I'm trying to think what it was. Reap or no heap or something. Right. Right. The holistic approach that you've you've. Be- well, they cried, and now you're advocating. Do you for know them? the name of that program? That was the. I do know the name. I'm just having a little recall difficulty yeah, yes. right now, but I know what you're referring to, and that actually, what you're saying, supports the. Um, oh, can I? By the way, can I just say? I mean, the you know the public schools are are, um, you know, are are a marvelous institution. You know, they. I. We do have to consider, though, that. Um, the data show 
that about 65% of children's outcomes are related to factors that are not related to school. So again, you know, when you're trying to sort out, we have many well-meaning people trying to sort out how to make, um, how to help children thrive and survive and, and do well in school as well. Um, and really the way to do that is to follow the data that says that 65% of the outcome is not related to school and pump direct transfers into the families that you know are suffering. If you know that, you know, the, if you know that, that. Isn't that like the classical liberal thing? Just throw money at it. No, I'm not. We can cure it. Let's well, just throw you know, money at it. When you say classical liberal, do you mean like no? That's the like cla- 18th century English economists. No, or? I'm saying like in in, a, in America, like a conservative. Well, right. you often right. hear that they say sure. liberal answer to everything is just throw money at it. Right, of course. But if I'd you look that. at NYCHA, right, for mm-hmm. instance, where it's thrown billions of dollars and liberals say give them billions more, it wasn't about money at all. It was about mismanagement. Yeah, but that's Steve, correct. And what I'm saying, yeah. if I, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but no, I have okay. to make the point <laughs> because I think that you can do it with NYCHA too. You're, when you throw money at a large institution where there's a perverse incentive to to you know make decisions about you know where to put the money like like NYCHA, it's not going to work you know and what you need to do if I can argue it is you need to you need to give the the NYCHA budget to to NYCHA residents and let them do let them fix it because who has more of a of a desire to fix NYCHA than the people who live in it why are we we shouldn't be doing it any other way so when you say you know throw money at the problem I'm not saying throw money at throw money at the institution I'm saying throw money I'm not using the word throw because I think that's flip but distribute the money transfer the money to the people who have the most incentive to use it correctly and properly, who are the residents themselves. And the same principle applies to us. Give us the money, the universal basic income, because we, because everybody has a right to live and because we can do better with that small transfer to each one of us, we can make better decisions and, and more adequate um, decisions than a big conglomerate that is incentivized every time they, you know, they hang on to a million dollars. Yeah, and that's that's not a liberal. That's like that's not a traditional liberal, American liberal idea. I mean, the American liberal idea is to fund the institutions, and you know, a conservative idea would be like lower taxes and let people, you know keep the money, don't have the social services, and let people do what they want with the money through a, you know, generally the through- The trickle-down lo- thing, which doesn't really work. Well, know. no, it's not trickle-down. I mean, it's 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 uh, just lower lower taxes, right? Like, let's just, you know, like, let's not give money to, uh, um, to the government. Let's keep the money ourselves and, and work for it. I mean, that's a little bit different because- it gives it, it lets off the hook a lot of rich people and it's not the same as this but the tradition like you i don't I, i'm surprised because it's like you fight against the bureaucracy and you fight against the bureaucracy and this is actually something that says hey look the bureaucracy is the problem let's cut out the middleman and just give, give them money. money yeah uh, could very well be like i yeah. said i don't um y- you know um i would 
see it as a possible solution. I'm, you know, I'm not discounting it. I'm playing a little devil's advocate here. It yeah. could very yeah. well work. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you'd have to come up with an agency, or you could just put it in people's bank account. Somebody would have to do that. Just one person Venmoing someone. Yeah, yeah. Venmoing. I mean, there's there's going to have to be some bureaucracy. Yeah overseeing this well, well, just AI robots right they'll do it we could just well I don't know we could but we could also we have an existing cash transfer um, uh, I guess infrastructure with social security that it might you know maybe we could do just you know we wouldn't have to create a new one I don't and know and we're also not you know we keep going back to the to the people on TANF and the poor we're talking about everybody right and, and that's something yeah and again there's logistical things cuz there's besides TANF there's people on fixed incomes there's people mm-hmm. that how do you feel about giving $1000 a week a month to uh, someone who makes a million dollars a year Steve I'm not really feeling that, you know. Okay. But if you're going to do it and you're saying everybody gets it, then everybody should get it. Yeah, it should because it it eliminates stigma. You know, and here's the other problem that you have if you if you uh if you do a cutoff, then you create situations where you're you're sort of you're creating a situation where someone who really needs it um you know might get cut off. And you know, there's another thing that that, that, you, that should be managed. Well, you got to you have to have a bureaucracy to manage it. And, and then, then you'd have to have a bureaucracy to sort out who's eligible and who's not. And well, that's what we're trying to avoid. A, a lot of poverty is, mm-hmm. in my opinion, because of financial illiteracy. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're going to give people money, then you should also give them courses on how to manage money. We well, give but, people that now. We no, th- that there now. needs to be more financial literacy. I hear that all the time from educators in, in black and brown communities. I, I agree with that. But And what the other thing, though, is that when you're under financial stress, it lowers your ability to think properly. Right. So you, literally your IQ goes down. So if you want people to think, if you want people to be better with their money, give them money. Yeah. It's really it's, seriously like that's it's it's scientifically proven that if you if they're not financially stressed, they're able to make better decisions. With their well, who's the person who said a fool in their money will soon be parted? Well, I you know, know P.T. Barnum. Well, I agree. I agree that that's and that's good for the economy. <laughs> it mean, just keeps I, on. Yeah. If you get a thousand dollars a month, you, know, you just spend it like, yeah, some people are going to be stupid with their money. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, how many people are stupid with their money now that aren't that I are know, technically I, not poor? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I would include we all make decisions that, you know, are a little bit frivolous sometimes. You know, that doesn't I don't think that that should be uh, it's something that we think that only very low income people do. It's not it, that's not the case. If anything, when you have less money, you you try to make it go longer, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um I don't know. I take a little bit of exception to the idea that we can just educate everyone out of being poor. We can't. We can't. What we need to do, you know, what we should do like I don't I disagree about the the whole thing of of financial education to the, a, as a method of of making people unpoor. So nothing is going to make people unpoor except for more income. You can, I definitely agree that just like we want to get better at other things, we definitely want to get better at managing our money. I could use that course. Mm. I could use that course. But, you know, to take a very poor person and allege, as I have seen over and over in my time as a social worker, well, you know, why don't you 
let you know we'll assign you a, a case manager to help you create a budget <laughs> like you know are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, how am I supposed to manage, you know, yeah, I'm making $11 an hour. Right. You know, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, and I really think that the people who need the, the education and financial management are not the individual low-income people um, or me or you or you, but the people who are taking enormous sums of, of federal, you know, welfare block grant dollars and saying that they will take care of their poorest residents and then leaving and put it in the state budget yeah and then (laughs) they're leaving a hundred million dollars on the table new york left on the table uh i think for the last year that the data was available which was either the 2017 they get the money from the feds or what is it they get the money from the feds now if you if you have a if you have a, a three billion, wait, they left them. They didn't reappropriate it. They just let. They didn't use it. No, they, you spend it or you spend it. it or lose it. I mean. They no, it's not spend it or lose it. They amass it and then when they don't spend it, they float it over to the next year. Oh, so, uh, okay. Yeah, right. So, so like, there, there's a strategy. I was going to say like yeah, like yeah. to spend it or lose. It. I've never heard of a, a government or any. Any department yeah. that doesn't spend money that's been given to them. Right. So, so just to give you an example, in you know between 2017 and 2018, the national unspent balance of of, of federal welfare funds, so all the states combined, has gone up. The pot of unspent money has gone up by. $600 million. Wow. So we have a pot of $600 million in welfare funds nationally that are not being that used. That are not being used. That's insane. It is insane. That's what I keep telling everyone. And and I so let me let me just tell you that I actually I wrote I mean once in a while when I have a chance I don't have a lot of time to do this but one of one thing I did was I wrote to this Kentucky legis- state legislator named Julian Carroll. Um, I'm hoping that he'll you know follow through. He seems like a a, a good sort. Um, I wrote him an extensive letter about this because Kentucky has a really bad uh, is really bad with this. They're keeping a lot of money, um, and they have very high poverty rates, and they have very um, very severe like requirements as far as work and things. They even want people to work for their Medicaid in Kentucky. That's really oh. crazy. That's really crazy. And Arkansas, too. So anyway, I wrote to him about this, and he wrote me back it, last year. Um, I kind of told him the things that I'm telling you, and he got back to me, and he said, Dear Ms. Pagan, I'm generally aware of these terrible circumstances, but the matter has yet to reach the attention of a legislative committee. I will make these facts known to the Health and Welfare Committee. Um, okay. Aren't they the ones in charge of it? Yeah. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> What's that about? Um, so, you know, and these are the good guys. Right. And, you know, to say that you're aware of these terrible circumstances. I wonder what college intern wrote that letter to you. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, you know what am I like? What do I do with that? No, you know, it's meant to. It's meant to be the dead end. Yeah, it's not meant to go any further. Yeah, and I also wrote to. Well, I didn't write to her. I uh, the head of health and human services of the state of Arkansas, whose name is uh, Cindy Gillespie. 
Um, I met her in January in Washington, D.C. at a conference and on, um, on Social Security for the, for the millennium, and they were talking about different assistance programs. And she was on a panel. Um, the panel was, was not about welfare. The panel was about Medicaid. But I don't know if you know this, but Arkansas last year was really in the soup because her, um, her Medicaid program started requiring people to electronically declare that they were working. And since, since most people in Arkansas don't have, comput don't have right. computers, they couldn't report and all their Medicaid got cut off. Oh my now, God. This, is what the, this is what's happening to these people. So anyway, um, I met her, and in the Q&A, I asked her, I said, well, you know, my understanding is that you're, um, you know, you're saying here that you want people in, or in your state to, uh, you know, like the theme was like enhancing, enhancing the health of low-income populations in the state or whatever. So I said, I understand that, you know, you want your residents to be healthier. I said, how do you think that they're going to be healthy when you peg your welfare grant at $240 a month for a family of three. <laughs> $240, that's what they're getting? For a family of three, how do you expect, and you're only enrolling um, fewer than seven out of 100 families that you know are eligible. Oh, my God. And she, you know, sort of stammered a little bit and, you know, Gave me her number afterward, right. and I've written to her. She won't write what, me and back. This, who is this that you wrote? That? This is the uh, she's the the either the commissioner or the you know the head of of health and human services for the state of Arkansas. Oh, Jesus. And, and they also left like ninety million dollars on the table, you know. So I wonder if if just to play devil's advocate, if they go, you know. How is it that a studio apartment in New York, it's outrageous, it's $2,000, and they have 65,000 homeless people, and they have a lot of warehouse apartments, and it's like, we only give our people $430 a month, but you know what, for 500 bucks a month, they can get a three-bedroom apartment. Well, it was 240 and I don't, I don't even think in Arkansas you can get anything for $240. No, but I'm just saying that it's, it's easy as a New Yorker to, to look at another state and say, oh, this is outrageous when if, if I am sure that people in those states probably look like, what is it with New York? They have all these, these you know, all these policies and mm -hmm. they're taking care of people and the rents are just like it's either rich or poor. At mm -hmm. least in Arkansas, the, the difference Everyone's... between rich and poor is, is a little bit. Well, I'm more concerned. Oh, really? Isn't, isn't Arkansas the home of Walmart? It is. Yes. Well, <laughs> so I think there is a bit of a difference between yeah. the rich and poor there. And I'm more concerned in, you know, in terms of like the, the you know, what we give people who are, who are living in poverty. I'm more concerned about the, the trend of the states under enrolling so grotesquely, you know, in, in, in Arkansas, they enroll like seven out of every hundred families who are eligible, not who might be eligible. In Texas, it's four out of every hundred families. Wow. Um, that, that is you outrageous. Know, yeah. If that's and that, I mean, so, there's... Okay. Um, that's, I mean, that, that is abominable, and this is really interesting. Um, what is your, like, what's your action plan? Like... What do you, how do you, how do you move forward from here? 
Well, so the basic income march, we really have, I think that we are in a moment. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who have been keeping basic income alive through advocacy and research and all kinds of writing and things like that. But we really are in a moment now uh, politically. And I think that the game plan is to have these marches and get everybody, you know, excited about the possibilities of universal basic income and how they might solve uh, some of these problems that, that we're talking about. And then um, we intend to set up an infrastructure after the marches to make it possible for people to, uh, to remain involved and to grow the movement. If someone were to want to get involved, how would they get involved right now? Uh, I would recommend the best thing for people to do is to go to our website, which is um, basicincomemarch.com. And we have a great digital team that, that set up uh, one of the pages is uh, there's a battle plan and there's uh, levels of, of there's specific actions that people can take. Mm-hmm. And, you know, approximate uh, time investment that that would entail, and you can choose which action you want to do. Um, and then, uh, you know, right after, right after the march, we're going to start engaging people in new actions. Have you reached out to local politicians in New York? I mean, so the, one of the speakers is uh, running for Congress. Congress, is that correct? Yes, two of the speakers. Is, right. there, is there any local lawmakers that are behind this? Uh, there will be. Oh, I'm, you know, like Corey Johnson um, or Mayor de Blasio well, or... Who? Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, so, Corey Johnson, my understanding, I have not... I don't want to start rumors, but my my understanding is that Corey Johnson... Um, will be at the is, march is, and he's is speaking. A, no, is is mm-hmm. aware of UBI and he is interested in UBI, and he may even be a UBI supporter, but I don't have any concrete data, so I don't want to say for sure. Um, if I were Corey Johnson, as, as um, I, w- I would be a UBI supporter. So um, <laughs> I, have on, I have, you know, from people who are more involved in the New York City Council that he's thinking about it and even possibly thinking about doing a bill. Um, huh. Yeah. Um, you heard it here, yeah. First, but 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 it could be rumor, so right. So just know that most of the podcast is pure rumor, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay. And um, actually, there's a state senator named Kevin Parker yes. who has presented a UBI bill. Not sure if you knew that. Uh, yeah, we actually did a story on that. Oh, so we do know that okay. it's Kevin Parker. Yeah. Right? Oh, well, um, you, had, you didn't. You didn't, you didn't know yeah. that, Steve. Yeah, we'll have to have Kevin in here. Yeah. Okay. As a matter of fact, he he had mentioned we could probably maybe even next week or something. Oh, great! That we would could be talk great. Talk about it. Yeah, and um, and um, also, uh, my former um, city councilman uh, Daniel Drum, mm. who is amazing, and I I think is uh, he's still the city councilman, isn't he? Well, he's my former because now I live in Brooklyn. But ah. I used to live in his district. And you you grew up in Queens? I grew up in Queens. What what neighborhood? Um Pretty well much. we moved around but uh I started in Corona and Woodside Houses. Mm. Yeah, and then uh we moved eventually to Lefrak City and Corona All and right. that's Drum's district. So I've known him for a good while and I've I've sp- I've spoken to him extensively about temporary assistance for needy families and poverty and and all of those issues and he's very informed. And I wouldn't doubt that at a certain point he would um, 
get on board for and it. And he's, he's running for uh, Queensboro president, isn't he? I believe. Or Jimmy Van Bramer and uh, Costa Constantides is. I know they two are. <laughs> yeah, and Donovan I don't, Richards. I, I, I don't know uh, if, if Danny is running for those things. You, I'm you sorry. Know, I'm, I'm curious to ask, and you don't have to answer. When when you were growing up, were you on public assistance? Was your, your family? Or? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I grew up in the... Um, in the 70s and 80s, and uh, at that time it was pre-welfare reform, and um, my parents, uh, well, my mother was a, a widow uh, for the first few years of, of my life, and, um, and she was on welfare when we, when we were in Woodside Houses. Um, the difference, you know, a lot of people um, don't really understand that, that back See, if you take a person who used welfare, who who um, who was on welfare in the 70s or 80s, and you tell them that you know maybe, but but they haven't been on welfare in many years, they may not be keeping track of just how invasive and 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 compulsory it's become, and how little of it is cash. When my mom was on on welfare in probably the uh, you know the the 70s for a few years. Um, when we were little, all all you had to put up with was you know uh, an occasional unscheduled visit from a caseworker to your home at you know any hour of the day or night um, to see what you had in your house, and and you got your cash check. And even though the cash check was inadequate, it was not as inadequate as it is now. Number one, and number two, you were allowed. You know, though people frowned upon you because they didn't recognize your unpaid labor, um, you were able, once that caseworker left you alone, you were able to live your life in relative peace raising your children. That's not the case anymore. It's not pegged to inflation. Now the grants are ridiculously low. Even in New York, it's only about, the maximum is only about 700 a month. Um, and that's the maximum. Right. A lot a of people don't get the maximum. Right. So, so you know, yeah, I did, you know, for a time, but um, I got more interested, really. I didn't really develop any consciousness of it until I became, you know, an adult again, so. Hmm. Well, I think that sounds, you, you know, I don't, even though I play devil advocates, like I say, I do believe in looking at an idea and looking at it openly and examining it and Who's to say? Maybe it, it is an idea whose time has come. Well, we will f- we will find out more we'll in the in, the, in more. the weeks ahead um, and the months ahead. I'm I'm excited to see how this will. I know I, Tom loves this. Yeah, He's, he talks universal income all the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, can I just say um, with regard to Saturday? So Saturday, uh, in addition to the different speakers we're having, we're also having a short. Uh, a short theatrical performance by the Theater of the Oppressed. Right, you were at, so sorry I missed the um, the sign painting thing, but how was that? It Just, was amazing. Yeah? It was amazing. We had a sign making party last night and, um, you know, we got, uh, we got a few, uh, a few cool signs and these are just, uh, I mean, the, in, I don't know a lot yet about, uh, the, their methodology, but their um, their methodology is based in the work of Augusto Boal. Yeah, and and you um, know him, Tom. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> he's a good guy. We used to. 
Well, I think <laughs> that... We used to play miniature golf. Yeah, used to, we used to drink at Denny's. <laughs> and, uh, but I think that they, you know, they, they are looking at, um, they're constantly looking at how to approach um, social injustices and also, you know, and, and solve problems um, by engaging people through the things we all love, like theater, singing, Game, dance. Games. Games. Um, you know, call and response and things like that. And they're going to be at the march, and I would say that, you know, we're so lucky to have them, you know. So Excellent. that's something else that people are going to be able to, to do. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming and um, giving us the whole spiel. Uh, I, I, after reading your article and um, after listening to you, I, it's it brought to light all these things that really don't get talked about right now because mm-hmm. we somehow it's all couched in this sort of idea of automation and you know but but really the fun the fundamental is is this is that um you know we ha- we already have this inhumane practice that um it can be vastly improved and yeah. will make our society better and steve hopefully you'll get on get on board at some point mm-hmm. uh, and uh yeah. Do we want to talk about? Do, do are we gonna do a lightning round? Or? Yeah, we might as well do a lightning round uh, very quickly. Time. What hmm? is that? It's That's just, just whatever's on our mind. Oh, just okay. something not not involved not in, in the discussion. In the main discussion. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess I would just say that I've always been a fan of pistachio nuts, and when I was a little <laughs> kid, when I was a little kid, they had red food coloring on it. Now, I don't know what happened, but when I was a little kid, and I and you'd always know there was a little machine you could put a quarter and you get pistachio nuts, but they were always red and they would turn your fingers red. Mm. So I really like that they're um, that they're not red anymore. They're naturally like white or bleached white. Um, the the fruit stand where I live, they have the Turkish ones, which are more money, but I think the California ones are just as good. I do like them lightly salted. And I like when they're crunchy as, you know, like sometimes they could be kind of soft. Um, as a pistachio nut connoisseur, I would uh, speak up for California lightly salted pistachio nuts. All right. Great, Steve. That's very timely as well uh, uh-huh. somehow. No, not really. Any other Do lightning like- rounds? Do you like <laughs> pistachio nuts? Um, I like them. They're very expensive. They are, and they're they're very nutritious. And I hate to bring it back to what we were talking about, but <laughs> a lot there are a lot of people in this world who can't afford to eat pistachio. They nuts. are nutritious, all right. Malnutrition is a is a is a problem in this country. All right. Well, it, at the place near me on Church Avenue, the. Mm-hmm. Uh, Turkish, Turkish place, stand. Carnival. Yeah, Carnival. I got so good. Yeah, and you can get like for two fifty, you can get you know some pistachio nuts. And I'll have to check that out. Do you, do you, where do you live in Brooklyn? Bed Stuy. Oh, nice. Where? How is nutrition in Bed Stuy? Well, I think I mean I'm just saying across the city that we definitely oh. have this this issue. I mean we we should be funding. We we should be funding um, a cash transfer that's f- sufficient you, for people. You know, to speaking of which, themselves. and pistachio nuts and nutrition, a big big uh, thing that's happening now is urban farming. It's yes. a big thing on rooftops and yes. the greening of of, and mm-hmm. you know people raising their own food in mm-hmm. their neighborhoods. In Bed Stuy, uh, yeah. they have a couple of those programs. That's true. I I will bring up that I I just found out because I went to the supermarket the other day and. The price of eggs has gotten exorbitantly high. I, I get really? outraged by the price of eggs. <laughs> like, or get, it was like eight dollars for a dozen eggs. 
That's outrageous. And I was like, all right, let, I'm just curious, how much does the chicken cost? No, it's because the chicken's been going on strike. <sighs> I'm trying to get away from eating eggs. <laughs> Why? I love eggs. Are you a vegan? I'm not a vegan, but mm. I'm trying to get away from eating eggs. Um, I was enlightened by a group called Anonymous for the Voiceless in yeah. Union Square a couple of months <laughs> ago. Uh-huh. And they were standing up for But chickens. what about like free range, like not like far, I get the organic stuff. I don't know why not. It's the same thing. Well, it, because according according to the information that I was given, um, it's, you know, the, the egg industry destroys uh, the male chicks uh, outright. Right, because they're useless to them. Yeah, so they... Well, not not to, uh, and they don't. They, they don't, don't. They don't. They don't eat them. They don't raise them for. They food don't raise because they're different. Two different. Like they're two different operations. They kill them as chicks. As chicks. The roosters. The male chicks. Yeah, that's a rooster. I'm just saying. I saw the video. <laughs> oh, I don't. Uh, you know. You know, it's pretty distressing. I. That makes sense. I never thought about that. But I'll tell you, we, uh, my strange wife, she had chickens and roosters in a, in a yard. They they can be a little bit mean, and they also. Well, when I lived in Sunset Park, th- I moved in, and like uh, you know, you check an apartment. You're like, okay, well, you know, like having lived in every single neighborhood. Uh, the first day I woke up, there was a rooster crowing at six o'clock in the morning. I was like, oh, yeah. you have to be kidding me. And I called three one one. I was like, "This you can't." And uh, it's actually illegal to have a rooster in New York City because of that. Yeah, because it wakes noise. up the entire. It wasn't even near yeah. me, and I actually found. I knew the person who had the rooster. Weirdly, it was like a friend of a friend. Hmm. So, anyway, so oh, that's I don't think you should kill every single male chick, but maybe there should be like a farm, like a sanctuary for. That would be heard for like thousands of miles if you had just like a farm full of roosters. Like I say, when roosters grow up, they do fight. Well, roosters I, do not get along. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know. I think that you're lucky that that rooster only waited until 6 a.m. to to do his thing. Well, it was like, it, I don't know, because it would yeah. wake me up every... But it was, yeah, it was very early. Yeah. Well, I... Because I, I, I went to college um, in Puerto Rico. Oh, really? Yeah, and there was a... My best friend lived in the countryside, and there was a rooster who would start at about... 345. Oh man. And the other mis- the, the other thing I didn't realize is they, they don't just crow in the morning. They crow the entire day. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they just keep on they, well, he didn't stop. He just kept on like it just you notice it as soon yeah. as yeah, he started anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> thinking of that, you know, you, you know, I do know I saw a video on YouTube in Puerto Rico. Mm. Um cockfighting is a kind of a national pastime mm-hmm. i mean they, you know it's like an old thing where they you know mm-hmm. just okay. thought i'd mention that about chickens since we're right yeah. so coming home to roost <laughs> i never went to one of those while i was there have you heard though that it's oh, uh, oh for sure yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for sure uh, yeah all and, right and in the book roots you know they used to be big in america it's big in a lot of cultures Great, and that's that's a good place to end the right. discussion <laughs> on basic income. I just thought the I'd ubiquity of cockfighting. <laughs> We've come full circle here. Um, well, again, thank well, you so much for coming on, and I'll see you at the march yes. uh, on Saturday. That's great. Um, Steve will be in Nashville. Yeah, I'm going to a uh, online digital convention. 
You know? Oh. We've, oh, by the way, you can find out Kings County Polls. At, at Twitter is Kings County Polls. Right. Uh, I, do you, do you have, have a website? Or uh, you said y- that Yes. Yeah, uh, so, oh, uh, and thank a Twitter you for, account. yes, thanks. Um, so the Twitter is at Income March. At Income at March. At Income March. Um, there's a couple of different Twitters that for different marches around the country and, and uh, also in Europe, and they have different Twitters. Um, but uh, ours is Income March, and our website is basicincomemarch.com. Our Facebook is at Basic Income March. And our Instagram is Income Movement. Very good. All right. And my Twitter is at Tom Rosati. Uh, and yeah, my Twitter is uh, Stephen underscore Wit. That's with a PH. Yell at us online. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank All you. right. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>